Well, believe it or not, we're going to open our Bibles, hopefully, and look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. John told me again last week, he said, oh, I was just so glad that we were going to get into Philippians 1. And I said, "Mm, not. But we are today. We spent three weeks giving what we call opening statements, just kind of an introductory uh, set of materials and things from the scriptures to give us a bearing, a foundation about this book. Well, today we want to get into Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to look really at just verse 1. Philippians 1, 1. I'll read Philippians 1, 1 and 2 because they kind of go together. This is what is called the salutation or the greetings, very common in that day. A little different than our letter writing, but this is how it begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, depending upon who you read, most guys generally agree that this is the greeting or the salutation to this letter. However, it's a little bit different, as I said a moment ago, than what we do. The New Testament structure of writing letters is different. Our letters usually end with the name of the one who's sending it. In Paul's day, that name was usually mentioned first. Then came the name of the person or persons who were being addressed, and the rest of the opening greeting. Then they're followed generally in this order. Sometimes changed, but most of the time. A thanksgiving and or a prayer. The body of the letter. And finally, concluding remarks, such as greetings, words of farewell, even sometimes a benediction. Now, it should be emphasized that this was the letter plan. I think that's on your outline. This is the letter plan of the day, but Paul adopts this letter plan, but he gives it a definitely Christian content to these people in Philippi. And so he begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like to do this morning is to build our thoughts around four words, And I think I find them in verse 1. We have the first word, which is servants, plural, Paul and Timothy. We have the word saints, which includes all of the believers, including Paul and Timothy. Shepherds, now you don't see that word shepherds there, but I'll show you in just a moment. It's there in the original language. And then to keep the alliteration alive, I've used the word supporters. Those who support in the leadership, we know them in our day as deacons. Please remember the bicycle wheel. Do you remember that? And it's not one that I drew or you'd never forget it. But it's the the bicycle wheel. In the middle of the wheel is what is called a hub. And all the spokes go out from the hub. So whenever you come down a spoke, everything comes to the center. And the spokes all come to that hub. And that hub is the word joy. So let me remind you once again, we want to constantly be taken back to that word and ask the question, how does this Connect with the word joy in whatever way it does. So let's look at these four words, and I'll do my best to share with what I believe how they connect to the word joy. First word, verse 1, servants, plural, Paul and Timothy, there's two guys. 
servants of Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. A heart of joy comes when people selflessly serve King Jesus and other people for the sake of Christ. That is one of the most joyful things that can happen in a Christian's life. When we are serving not only Christ, but people in His name. And that's not only Christians in His name. When we find ourselves with a servant's heart and a servant's attitude. Now the word here in the Greek language is the word doulos. And because it's plural, it's douloi. It's used about 130 times in the New Testament. And it can be translated, I don't know if your translation has it, it might, it could be translated bond slave. John MacArthur wrote a book. The name of the book is Slave. And having done his typical amount of study, I tend to agree with John. Now, one thing about John MacArthur, when he writes or preaches, you know one thing, he's done his homework. And according to John, there's only one use of that word servant in the whole Bible that can be translated servant as we understand all the rest of them should be translated slave. Now, the word slave is perhaps, in our thinking, something like the time of the Civil War. You remember the slaves? They were abused and mistreated. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the relationship of the slave to the owner. That's the idea. Remember, Paul had once been a slave. Remember in chapter 3? If you'll turn over there to chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul was once a slave to his resume, to his accomplishments, to who he had become before he met Christ. Philippians chapter 3, uh, let's start in about verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anybody else thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here he goes and he gives to us his litany, his description of what he boasted in, what he was proud of, what he was a servant to. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Please read into that. I traded masters. Those things I once counted gain, and to my credit, I count as nothing. I've come under a new master. Who is that, Paul? He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. That word Lord can be translated master. Jesus Christ now is my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You can take the word rubbish and substitute cow patty because that's what it means. I now count all of those things that used to dominate my thinking and my reputation and my feeling about myself now as cow dung. Nothing. Rubbish. Why, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know Him. This is toward the end of Paul's life. I would ask myself, Paul, if anybody knew Christ, you knew Him well. But Paul says, I'm not satisfied with what I know about Him today. I want to know Him more. Well, what do you want to know about Him? That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection? 
may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul once was a slave of those things. But by the grace of God, Acts chapter 9 tells us about his conversion experience when he was Saul of Tarsus, and he's traded masters. Paul now is a slave of Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian, he traded masters. Now, let me just pause here and remind us in this Western contemporary culture that when you talk about the word slave, that's not a popular word. And I quote, The claim that Jesus enslaves those whom he saves may sound harsh and uninviting. One might ask, what kind of salvation is it that deprives us of our cherished autonomy and subjects us to the will of another? That's not very popular in the West. In our culture, no, 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 nobody tells me what to do. I decide what I do. But consider, if you will, please, the link between being saved and enslaved. Someone said it this way, Jesus Christ will not save anyone whom he cannot and will not master. There was a big controversy. It may still be going on, I don't know. John MacArthur and others wrote some books and had conferences on it, on this, what is called lordship salvation. Listen carefully. Say they... You can receive Jesus Christ as Savior, and sometime down the road, if you'd like to, you can make him your Lord. (laughs) Only one problem with that. The Bible says God already made him Lord. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you shall receive or believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be saved. There's no separation. When you receive Christ as Savior, He becomes Lord. He's either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. And so there was great controversy over that. But listen, Jesus Christ commands and leads. We don't like that word, but we need to understand that when Jesus saves, He enslaves. Now, be careful when you understand that word. It's so contrary to a fellow by the name of William Ernest Henley. He wrote a poem called Invictus. You remember some of those famous lines? Quote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, says this author, no matter how much one likes to think otherwise, their every plan and action is driven by a desire to avoid pain or achieve gain by pleasing or placating some lord or another. The master you serve may be success or money or what money can buy. Your Lord may be affection or romance or reputation and respect. You may be enslaved by other people's opinions, terrified at the prospect of rejection or ridicule, or perhaps you are haunted by the specter of life alone, but you are under some master. Only one of two, really. Jesus Christ as Lord or something else. Says he, you also have to face the fact that every other master than Jesus will exploit you and disappoint you in the end. Not all may be as obvious as the evil spirit that possessed that girl back in Acts 16. Or as blatant as her owners who took advantage of her as property. But every master other than Jesus Christ will use you and discard you. When we realize that all people serve one master or another... 
and that all other masters inevitably abuse and fail us, suddenly we find there's nothing as liberating as being a slave of King Jesus. The church father Chrysostom said it this way, quote, One who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he's truly a slave of Christ, he's not a slave in any other realm. And being a slave of Christ not only frees us, but it confers upon us an authority in his kingdom that cannot be denied. Now, where did this word come from? Where did this idea come from? Glad you asked. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 21. We'll see the genesis of this idea. Exodus chapter 21. The law has just been given. The Ten Commandments have just been enumerated. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21 in Exodus, we read these words. Exodus 21.1 Now these are the rules that you shall set before the people of God, Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go out for free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he will go out single. If he comes in married, his wife can go out with him. If a master gave him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall belong to the master, but he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I don't want to go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. They take that piece of metal and a little hammer, and they make a hole in the ear. And that man, for the rest of his life, is marked. And when people saw him and they saw that, they concluded two things. Number one, that guy's a slave. But he's not a slave because he has to. He's a slave because he wants to. He loves his master. He's got a good master. He could have gone free, but he wouldn't choose any other thing. Folks, that's the idea behind this word in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 where Paul says we are servants. We are bond slaves. We are willing, happy, joyful bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Others in the New Testament also designated themselves the same way. James... Peter, and Jude. And quite honestly, if you're here this morning and you're a child of God, truly born of the Spirit of God, you're His slave. The question is, what kind of slave am I? Am I doing His bidding? Am I chafing under His rules? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Don't you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? You've been bought with a price. You're his property. He's your master. You're his slave. Therefore, glorify him in your body which belongs to him. So in my mind, there's no controversy in this lordship salvation thing. Jesus Christ is Savior. He is Lord. And Paul, from the get-go, says that he and Timothy are slaves. May I make this personal to us? When you have a church that's full of people with a slave-servant mentality rather than walking around saying, uh, what are you going to do for me? I want my way. I want this. I want that. When you have servants in a church, you'll have joy abounding and slopping over everywhere. 
that mentality out there has crept in here. And so everybody wants their own way. Everybody talks about their rights. Everybody talks about their preferences. Folks, when I became a Christian, I gave up all my rights. I don't have any. I have a right to serve Christ and to serve His people. And when the question comes up, well, let's see, how many of you were alive to hear John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, his first one? Remember his famous phrase? It should be written in our hearts. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what? What you can do. Can I, can I contextualize that? Can I contemporaryize, if that's the right word? Ask not what living legacy can do for you. Ask what you can do for living legacy. Ask not what your leadership can do for you and pamper you and spoil you and make you feel like a country club member. Ask, how can I participate? What can I give? Don't ask, how much do I have to give? Ask the question, how can I keep giving until, well, just stop there then. You understand what I'm saying? Joy in a local church comes when people see and act like servants. Why? Because they're servants of Christ. That'll bring great joy, I think, if that happens. Can I give you an illustration? True illustration as well. Have you ever heard of a quit claim? Q-U-I-T-C-L-A-I-M? Well, a quit claim deed is a, a legal document. It's used when a person is signing over all their rights to property or possession that they once had a share in. When they sign that quit claim deed, they are giving up whatever claim they had at all. They are surrendering all of their rights. When Jesus commands us to follow, there's not a lot of paperwork involved, but he demands somewhat of a quit claim deed. When we begin to follow him, listen, you're signing over your house, your car, your bank account, your career, your marriage, your children, your future, and anything else you once laid claim to. You have no more rights and nothing can be withheld. You deny yourself, you sign the quit claim deed on your life, and you give it to Christ Jesus and say, what do you want me to do? Here's a personal illustration of that. Millard Fuller. Anybody heard of him? Probably not. I had until I read this. He tells of becoming a millionaire by the age of 29. Says he, he bought his wife everything she could ever possibly want. But one day he came home to a note that announced she had left him. Millard went after her. He found her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. They talked into the early hours of the morning as she poured out her heart and made him see that the things that our society says are supposed to be so satisfying had left her empty and cold. Her heart was empty, her spirit was burned out, she was dead inside, and she wanted to live again. Kneeling at their bedside in the hotel room, Millard and Linda decided to sell everything they had and dedicate themselves to serving poor people. The next day was Sunday. They found the nearest Baptist church, went to worship, and thanked God for their new beginning. They shared with the pastor after the morning service, they told him what had happened to them and the decision that they had made. Are you ready for this? Ironically, the minister told them, whoa, that's a little radical. You don't really have to do all that. Millard said, he told us it was not necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we were not giving up money and things that money could buy. We were giving up, period. Miller and Linda started an organization you've probably heard of before, Habitat for Humanity. 
That's real. I'm not asking you to go home, sell everything, go out and store an organization. But spiritually, everything that I have or think I have, I need to put on an altar of some kind and say, Lord, I quit. I give up. It's yours. You own it. I'm just a steward. Tell me what you want me to do. Those kind of people will fill a congregation with great joy and will attract people out there who don't understand that at all, folks. Servants. That's the first word for joyful congregation. Secondly, saints. Now that's a Greek word that literally means holy ones. It's the Greek word hagios. And what he's saying here is, is that he and Timothy are servants, and he's writing to saints, and they're including himself in that as well. So how is that connected to joy? Oh, folks, if I understand the right standing that I have before God in Christ Jesus, that'll bring me joy, and I need to remember regularly what God really thinks about me. What does he really think about me? Well, let me ask you this. What does he think about his son? Because the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, my standing is before God. This includes the leaders as well. Holy ones. Another way we could say it is consecrated ones, separated ones. As you trace this word through the scriptures, it has the idea of having something very common. Tools and utensils and property and houses, garments, all of them are called holy things. Well, what does that mean? It means that they, they have a common purpose. But God takes that common thing and separates it from its common use and, and separates it unto himself for a special use in his kingdom. You and I as, as people who have been created by God, if we're Christians, God has taken and separated us from our old life and brought us into his kingdom and has made us sons and daughters. He called us. He marked us out. He separated us for his glory. Now, when we talk about holy ones, we're not talking about perfect, sinless character. We're talking about position. We're talking about standing, how God sees me. And let me tell you, if you are prone to be overwhelmed by your sin and failure, if you are prone to be discouraged every time you disobey or, or disappoint God, and Satan comes along and whispers in your ear, see, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't do that. You know what your father thinks about you now? And all of the other lies that he gives. You just remind him of this. When he says that, first of all, agree with him. Hear about Martin Luther? I think it was him. Had a dream one time. In his dream, Satan came to him and listed all of his sins. I mean, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And in this dream, when Satan seemed to be at the end, Martin says, are you finished now? Yes, I am. He says, you're right. And probably some you've left out. But you need to do one more thing. You need to take a red pen and write over all those sins. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. That'll bring joy. That'll bring delight. God loves me because I'm in Christ. God sees me in Christ. So if you want to talk to me in the future and say, Saint Ed, how are you doing? I'll accept that. St. Mickey, how are you? St. John, how are you? It's biblical. 
I read this week, and I don't know where it was. A gentleman was talking to a, a Catholic nun. And they were talking about the Bible and saints. You know, Roman Catholicism has their saints. And this guy's talking to her as they're looking at the sword. He says, would you like to meet a saint? Oh, yes. Because you can't become a saint usually until after you die, right? He goes, would you like to meet one? She goes, oh, yeah. He goes, okay. Start talking to him. You are a saint? Oh yeah. And then he took her to the Scriptures and showed her this truth. You're talking to a saint. Brothers and sisters, if we see ourselves the way God sees us, that will bring joy. Serving. Right standing before God will fill the heart with joy and thrill. And I also wrote here in my notes, if we see ourselves that way, that will lead to unity and love and sacrifice one for another. Well, there's another word in this first verse. And it's the word, probably in your translation, overseer. I've translated it shepherd. Because biblically, it could be put there. Who are we talking about? Well, let me just say to you that there are three words in the New Testament. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 20. And I want to show this to you. Acts chapter 20. Now, when it comes to standing before God, all of us are saints. But in the function of the body of Christ in a local church, there are those whom God has called to lead. They don't take a step up. They take a step out. God calls them to lead the body. And so in function, there are differing gifts and titles. But in Position before God at the cross, we're all on the same level. All of us are saints. But in the body, there needs to be those who are separated unto leadership so that the body can function as God wants it. It's like a home. It's like a Christian home. There's one head over the family. You can only have one head. There's got to be just one leader. That's a whole other series of messages, but that's the principle behind this. So in Acts chapter 20, I want to show you something, if I may. Look at verse 17. Paul is here speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says in verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said this. I'm not going to read it, but go down to verse 28. Still talking about the same guys. Verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you. And that word there is a different word, overseers. To care for, or another translation is to shepherd the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. There are three different words that are used interchangeably for the same person, for the same office. Those Greek words are presbyteros, you ever heard that word before? Presbytery, Presbyterian, that's the word. Another word is episcopace, or we've English word is episcopalian. The other word is poimena, which is the idea of shepherding. Those three words. And so we have elders, overseers, shepherds, pastor, are all talking about the same office. And Paul is writing this letter to those in that office who are functioning in leadership. And my comment about the joy is this. To be set apart for leadership does bring great joy. Sometimes. 
Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you. They watch for your souls and must give an account. So let them do it so they can have joy and not be grieved. But it is a joyful thing when God says to a man, listen, I want you to be a leader. I want you to be a shepherd, an overseer, an elder in the congregation. And they take that position of doing that. It's a process. They are identified. They are trained. They are ordained. But I want you to know that any church in the New Testament, and you'll find the word elder in the plural, in Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 22, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1, James 5, and 1 Peter 5. Now I'm talking to a group about the Southern Baptists. So you're looking at me going, what are you talking about? Well, I just want you to know that the deacons and myself have been praying about this. We believe it is possibly something the Lord wants for a living legacy in the future. We don't know, but we believe it's biblical and we're asking God for wisdom. But the point is this, it's a biblical office, and if you take the two offices and the next one is supporter or deacon, you have the whole of the church functioning as God wants it to. The elders, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers are the ones who take care of the spiritual needs of the congregation. And as we'll see in just a moment, the deacons or the supporters take care of the physical needs. So what's the point? A plurality of men in this office will bring joy and blessing to a congregation. The spiritual oversight. And you'll find their qualifications given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And by the way, the qualifications have more to do with character than influence. So as you pray about this, as you think about this, if it comes to pass in the future... Those are the kind of people that God wants to be put in that office. And I believe it will be a blessing. A congregation can know great joy if they have this according to the Scriptures. So as I said a moment ago, please be in prayer as these men pray about this and seek the Lord and proceed ahead. So we've got uh, servants, we've got saints, we've got shepherds. And the last thing in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 is deacons. That word there is diakonos. It literally means minister. And so that's the other office. The only two offices I know of in the New Testament in a local church are elder and deacon. Somebody says, well, what about deaconess? Okay, possible. There's no specific, but there seems to tend to be that. But it's not an office on par with elders and deacons, but it's certainly something that can be, can be used in the congregation. So this last one are the supporters, the deacons. And one final thing in relating this to joy, to serve the practical needs of the body will bring great joy. You'll find the beginning of this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6. Do you remember that story? The church is early in its history. There was some squabbling between women of one portion and another portion, and, and the elders came out and said, wait a minute. We cannot give ourselves to try to deal with these kinds of problems. You look out from among yourself men who are full of the faith and the Holy Spirit. You show that and we'll appoint them to this office. And so the deacons were born, as it were. The principle is in the Old Testament as well. But in the New Testament church, this is where it began. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Their qualifications, by the way, are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So what do the deacons do? Deacons take care of primarily the physical needs of the congregation. The building, 
Usually they oversee the benevolence, the kindness, support ministry to those who have need. Many times they do the visitation of the congregation. And according to Acts 7 and 8, they may even do some preaching. Philip and Stephen both were deacons, but they also did some preaching. And can see uh, Stephen's message in Acts 7 and Philip's message in Acts 8. All right, here we go. Beginning this book, a book of joy. I think Paul gives to us here four things that gets us on the right path to having a joyful relationship one with another and with the Lord. First of all, servants. Secondly, saints. Thirdly, shepherds. And finally, supporters or deacons. Remember, joy is the goal. And from the get-go, Paul connects this theme to three specific things. Willing servanthood, joyful consecration, and God-ordained leadership. Pray about this. Ask the Lord for wisdom as you go forward from this point on. God brings the pastor to you that you'll be on the road to health and joy and blessing one with another. Let me conclude by making a couple of comments, if I may. We alluded a little while ago that if you're not a Christian, you're still a, a servant. If you're not a servant of Jesus Christ, you're a servant of something. And I just want to remind you what that one guy said. Any other master will use you, abuse you, and then lose you. You'll never be satisfied. He'll extract all he can from your whole life and leave you helpless. But not so with King Jesus. Not so with Master Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your soul. Jesus is the greatest master. So spiritually, if you're not a Christian, get your ear operated on today. May the Holy Spirit take the spiritual all and drive a hole there. By the way, in the psalm, there's an allusion to this where the psalmist prays, Open my ear, Lord. Open my ear. May the Lord make us servants. If you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. He's the greatest master you'll ever have. You'll never be disappointed in Him. He'll never disappoint you. And Christians, brothers and sisters, may God help us to renew our servant attitude. May God help us to renew our desire to pursue holiness with all of our hearts. And let's pray that God will raise up godly leaders in living legacy, whoever they may be, that He'll raise them up and that you as a congregation will sustain them in prayer and work with them and walk with them and follow them and work together for the glory and the honor of God.